Good morning, afternoon, evening, whenever, wherever we find you. Thanks for tuning in to Doth Protest Too Much, a Protestant historical theology podcast. And um, this is a reminder for our listeners um, to give us a rating, um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, however you listen to us. If it does ratings, uh, feel free to give us one, five stars, one star, however you honestly feel, we can take it. So um, but thank you for those who have uh, gone, gone on and did that for us. So we do appreciate it. So today is going to be the first of, it's actually going to be, it should be a five-parter by the time it works out, a five-part episode. And I'm, I'm thinking of calling, you'll see, but by the time you'll, you're listening to this, it, it would have had an episode title, but um, I'm thinking of calling it something along the lines of Theologian's Symposium, because it's going to be a meeting and coming together of me and a couple other individuals uh, who will be talking about theologians. And we have one with us today, friend of mine, James Rickenbacker. Um, is, is your last name pronounced like the guitar, Rickenbacker? No, it's Rickenbaker. Um, Rickenbaker, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, I totally gave, That's you, fine. That's fine. gave you the guitar name. Uh, James and I know each other from the web uh, as, as uh, lots of clergy and church professionals seem to know each other through uh but it's good to see your face on zoom um and so yeah, you too, man. so james you are we're, we're both kind of i guess in the same generation of of ministers i mean you 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 and i went to seminary kind of roughly around the same time but you went to virginia theological seminary right right and you are based in virginia right. and at uh aquia episcopal church I, did i pronounce that one right aquia aquia <laughs> one yeah. of these days I'll that's all right no worries and I know you're, you'll be repeating it for me, but I think our listeners will find a, a, there's an interesting historical connection story behind the name of you, the ch church you serve at. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, go you ahead. Mean, you want me to go ahead and fill in? Sure. Fill it in, man. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so I, I, I just a little bit of biographical sketch. Um, so I went to seminary in 2013 graduated 2016 so i think we were concurrent um and went to went to bts virginia theological seminary uh in alexandria virginia that's where i met my wife rachel i have served in exactly one parish as an ordained deacon and priest uh, and that's in stafford virginia aquia episcopal church and as drew was saying um there is an interesting name connection there uh, the name was given to the area by John Smith of Pocahontas fame. Um, Pocahontas was actually captured in Stafford County, Virginia. Um, and the name is an Algonquin loan word. It's onomatopoetic. It is, uh, it, it's what they call seagulls because seagulls make that sound. Quia, quia. So <laughs> uh, that's the way the name came into being and then the area became known as Aquia. and when the area became known as Aquia, um the church became known as Aquia church because it was near this body of water um, that john smith traveled up uh, that he named Aquia creek so that's that's the way it was in colonial virginia with anglican churches so and i will be honest with you i don't know if i've ever heard of seagull at least the seagulls up in michigan didn't go quia quia. It was more like a, ah ah. 
if I remember, uh, if I'm remembering right, but well, it must just be southern seagulls, you know. It I must guess, be southern seagulls, yeah. That's their draw. Think, I don't know if I really see many seagulls around Louisiana. Do I? I must maybe in a parking lot, but I just don't. I don't yeah. Know. Now I, I grew up in all. eastern North Carolina, so so seagulls have been around me my whole life. <laughs> right. And you are self-identified evangelical Episcopalian. Um, sure. Kind of like myself, I'm part of. EFAC Evangelical Fellowship the Anglican, but I can communion, but I, I, I feel like I'm more of like a Anglican Lutheran than I am. <laughs> we'll get into that. Um, but tell so, but you've been in the Episcopal Church for your whole life. Or? Yep. Okay. My dad's a priest. Um, so I grew up an Episcopalian. Um, I grew up as an evangelical Episcopalian. Um, I don't know that I would have officially adhered to, you know, the what is it, the five points of Bevington's, you know, evangelicalism or whatever, but I, I certainly grew up in that milieu and that in that way of thinking. Um, very low church preaching with perhaps a broad to high liturgical theology, um, but I certainly would have uh, ascribed to the, the 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 title of evangelical when I was a kid. Um, but I even did some of the, you know, sort of standard American evangelical things like going to, um, you ever, you remember Acquire the Fire? I do. I had a few friends, a couple of friends that went to that. I never did, but yes, I do. Yeah. Um, so I, I remember the wow CDs. Oh yeah, I do. It's <laughs> not now. Wow. <laughs> yes. Oh, I, I remember, I remember. Wow. Yes. Um, I, I got this for Christmas. Um, we're getting really frequently. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I grew up as an evangelical Episcopalian, um, and uh, and and have been an Episcopalian my whole life. Um, that's my it's my theology. It's the way I understand things. It's really seeped into my bones. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also have a, a, a strong Lutheran connection. I mean, my last name is is, is Rickenbaker. Um, you know, it's it's German and Swiss. So it, there's mm-hmm. there's the the Reformation connection even even in my my ancestry. Um, and I've got Anglican, Presbyterian, and Lutheran family members, so it's uh, it just it's sort of it's in my blood. You have uh, the the uh, Paleo Protestant Reformation bases covered in your family, right? <laughs> so. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, um, but uh, but yeah. So I I I grew up in in all of this, um, and uh, and have become a a bit deeper in it since, uh, since I was a kid, I've, I've, I've grown in the way that I understand things. And actually I feel like I'm a stronger Anglican now than when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, if that makes any sense. Was that kind of going back to kind of the reformational heritage of Anglicanism via reading primary works and knowing the history or? Yeah. Yeah. So really over the last couple of years, um, I've been digging into the heritage of, of the Reformation um, quite a bit, and it's fundamentally changed the way that I view things, the way I preach, the way I pastor, um, and uh, I know we'll get into this when we talk about the, oh, yeah. the theologians, we got some theologians to bring up. So Yeah, some heavy hitters. Uh, so Yeah, we got some good ones today. Uh, we got some really good ones today, and, we've, and our, for our listeners, uh, we're, we're doing kind of something similar. I remember, uh, yeah, it was Father Isaac from... Um, Miserable Offenders came on once and we, we did like a favorite theologians list. It was a one-time episode type thing, but 
Um, we're going to do that, and I'm doing this as a way to kind of to introduce James more to y'all. James is going to be uh, 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 kind of, uh, one of our frequent guests, um, kind of like Stephen and uh, and Charles. And so, uh, just because I want to get some f- more familiar faces on here, and you know, not be so lone wolf like. I don't know. If I, <laughs> I don't know if that was the best way to put it, but um. So yeah, so um, so we decided what what a better way than just how do we talk about your theology well i mean you talk about people theologians who have influenced you and so um and and some of these are and 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 i'm hoping and i it's from what it sounds like from james and i from our pre-show convo that these are um uh theological influences are obviously they they affect you in a personal way too and so we got some good ones today so uh and uh i don't know how you want to start this james i mean i was going to see if you wanted to go first sure. um sure and uh for this i don't think we're really going in any order i'm kind of going chronological but not really uh and for as a reminder again for our listeners we are this is going to be first of several parts charles will be joining us on some of them and by the time we're done with it all me james and charles will have shared all five of our our top five we each have a top five so yeah <laughs> At least right now, our top five. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the thing that I think is important to realize is that this is a snapshot. And I remember when, when you were interviewing um, uh, Father Isaac, that, uh, that that was one of the things that he said, too, is that this is a snapshot. This is where I am right now. And, and I, I imagine that these five will, will be influential for the rest of my life. Um, mm-hmm. but, but certainly right now, this is where this is where my heart is. So so yeah, I'll go ahead and start, and and uh, I'll leave with the haymaker. Um, let's let's talk about Luther, oh, Martin great. Luther. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Luther, I really have only started reading Luther in the last couple of years, um, mm-hmm. but it's fundamentally changed the way that I think, the way that I pastor, the way that I I am um, as as a priest. I think. Um, and uh, I, I, so I've, I've always known about Luther, right? I mean, you can't be in, in a Protestant denomination and not know Luther. Uh, right. Luther is really the father of Protestantism. And so I, I knew about Luther. I even attended a Lutheran church when I was in college for a little while, um, but really for my whole college career. Um, and, and, but I, I didn't really know Luther intimately. I didn't know his writings. Um, and so I started reading recently, uh, a good friend of mine, my best friend actually, uh, is, is an Episcopal priest just south of here in Fredericksburg, um, Virginia, obviously. Um, and he introduced me to, you know, a compendium of Luther's writings, which is actually going to be one of my book recommendations. Um, the, the Timothy Lull, yep. um, uh, compendium, which is, I think, um, a standard it's got his um, best stuff yeah i mean yeah. the standard the standard the, yeah. where everyone yeah. should start if they want to do primary reading yeah yeah so um so so the way that i started was just to dig into luther and actually i i think even before the lull book um i started reading the bondage of the will with him um which you know luther said if there are two books worth keeping in, in his entire corpus it would be his small catechism and the bondage of the will. Did you really say that? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause the small catechism is, uh, is really a clear, concise, 
simple way of expressing the Christian faith in, in catechetical form, question and answer form, right? And, um, and it's, it really is, uh, I think he gets to the heart of the faith. Um, but a little biographical sketch of Luther might be helpful too, just for, for folks who aren't as familiar with him. Yeah. Born in 1483, died in 1546. He was born in, and my, my German, even though I have a German last name, my German is not very good. He was born in Eiselben, Germany. Uh, Eisleben. Yeah. Eisleben. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, he was a uh, son of a copper miner um, and then had a, a kind of conversion experience where he was riding a horse in the middle of a thunderstorm and lightning struck. And he, he asked for intercessory prayer to St. Anna and became, uh, he, he came to the conclusion that he wanted to become a monk, that God was calling him to become a monk. So he became an Augustinian, was uh, schooled in uh, William of Ockham and the school of nominalism, which please don't ask me to explain nominalism, but I, I know, I know sort of what it is, but I'll, I'll let you do that. Yeah. I've recently been reading some Ockham so I can, yeah, I can get in that. It's, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Luther became a student of theology, a student of the Bible, um, and was really influenced um, pretty heavily by the writings of Erasmus of Rotterdam, the Dutch theologian. Um, and, when he started reading Erasmus, Erasmus being part of that humanist school, really one of the founding members of the humanist school, I think, um, Luther really liked what Erasmus was doing, which because Erasmus was calling for, you know, ad fontes, go back to the sources, you know, not, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be focusing so heavily on like writing a commentary on, on uh, Lombard sentences, right, which is how you become a scholastic theologian but rather you should be writing commentaries on scripture and looking at scripture and, and reading scripture, not just in Latin, but in Greek and Hebrew um, for, for all of his faults. Um, that, that certainly is something that Erasmus got right. Um, and so Luther was reading Erasmus was corresponding with Erasmus over, uh, you know, via, via um, letters and whatnot. Um, and then, you know, the, the big moment, um, supposedly the beginning of the Reformation, but I, I'm, I'm not sure that you really can say the Reformation began on October 31st, 1517. Yeah, they, they debate when the, well, they debate when Luther's breakthrough tower experience is, or I guess his, his own personal Reformation, like what was happening inwardly. They, they debate when that happens and they debate on when you can officially date. But yeah. Right. Well, I, I think that I think it's safe to say that when Luther was writing his commentary was commentary on the Psalms and commentary on Romans that you begin to see Reformation yeah. Luther, right? I think it was uh, was it Ernst Beitzer? I don't remember if he was one of the. I think he might have been one of the ones who. Uh, um, I don't know. There's been some scholarship. It, it could not be him at all. I'll make a correction to show us. But there's been some yeah. scholarship. I say the same thing you said. Uh, that Psalms. Yeah. I think that's what 1515 or 1516. Yeah, it's yeah. it's right around there. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and I remember that in reading, um, which is another one of my recommendations, the Kittleson biography of Luther, mm. which is phenomenal. Um, if you I've not read that. that, I'll check it out. Yeah, it's it's really really good. You know, I mean, obviously Roland Bainton is the standard. Um, for, for those who know anything about Luther scholarship, Roland Bainton was the one who wrote um, the, the sort of standard biography of Luther. Um, but Kittleson um, updated it and, um, and added to it with, you know, more recent Luther scholarship. And, and he's 
uh, if memory serves, gone on to be with the Lord. But um, but it's it's a great biography. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that that you know two big moments in Luther's life in the early Reformation period are the Heidelberg Disputation in fifteen eighteen. Um, and then in 1521 with the Deed of Worms um, mm-hmm. or the Diet of Worms. But uh, when I took a class with with um, Dr. Mark Mattis, who's a, a brilliant Lutheran theologian and scholar. Did you, did you, that's right. You did study a class under him. Yeah. Yeah. I know uh, he's, him. he's at ILT, but I've never studied under him yet. Right, uh, if you can take anything with him, uh, uh, I, I will shamelessly plug for him because he's really good. He's really good. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, I've I've read a couple of his articles. I mean, I, just, I bet he's amazing. Um, I don't yeah. think he actually teaches courses at ILT. He's he's on the um, PhD supervisor. Like he, he supervises dissertations for their very recently started. Yeah. PhD he teaches at an undergraduate school in Iowa. Um, yeah. a college in Iowa. Um, yeah. But uh, but the Heidelberg Disputation. Um, that's Luther's theology of the cross, theology of glory, um, which I think, uh, I, I think that, uh, how, uh, if memory serves Gerhard Ferdy, who's, uh, an American Lutheran theologian, um, he really was of the mind that Luther carried that, um, dichotomy with him throughout his entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are others who say that the theology of cross theology of glory was just sort of a snapshot of Luther at that moment in 1518. Yeah, but uh, I really think that that you know, even though you don't see it as frequently that specific language as frequently later on, um, I think Luther was very clear about the difference between a theology of the cross, which is that Christ is the one who who merits, um, that Christ is the one who does everything for us, mm-hmm. completes the sacrifice once and for all, uh, and bestows it by grace through faith. As opposed to a theology of glory, which is what you would call, um, you know, semi-Pelagianism or full-on Pelagianism, yeah. that, that we contribute to our salvation in some way. And I think it, it was, um, it it's also has, a, I guess, a, I don't want to say existential aspect, but the whole, that dichotomy, as you say, I'm of the opinion that he carried around the rest of his life. I don't think it's merely a snapshot, but it it's, I think that's one of my favorite bits. That's one of my favorite theological pieces from Luther's the theology of the cross because it contrasts not only so much of what he perceived in medieval church piety and practice, but also contrasts with a lot of perhaps currents we see today, and almost the human default that falls into. Um, how do I explain it? I guess the theology of glory is basically like this idea that um, that we are that we seek that we seek to. Um, not necessarily glorify ourselves, even though that's what it ends up doing, but we seek to kind of um, build glory mm-hmm. in our Christian life. I guess I mean, there's probably a better way to put that, but um, it misses the whole point because our focus, our focus should be on the cross. Right. And, uh, and because that is, and it's almost like a submission, it's a surrender. It's an entire surrender of ourselves to the cross rather than seeing the, I heard, I've heard one theologian put it this way and i can't even tell you the name but the theology of glory basically sees the cross as like kind of a good stepping a good um good point a, a big important but but just you know an important step needed in the history of our salvation mm-hmm. rather than the center crucial pivotal pivotal moment like 
the cross was needed in order to kind of get us on the right step. And, and uh, now that we're on the right step, let's not falter. Mm-hmm. But that's by the theology of the cross says that's not the way to look at it. Theology of the cross right. says that that's who God is. God is nailed to the cross. Surrender yourself to that. Right. Um, you you know, know, it, it's very powerful. Has ex- it does have an existential dimension to it. That's very powerful. But. Oh, absolutely. And it has a pastoral dimension to it too, right? I mean, like how many times, I, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people, whether in my congregation or just in general, who feel the weight of the law and they don't know how to explain it. And so the thing that really, for me, has been so formative about Luther is the law gospel distinction, mm-hmm. like the, the law gospel hermeneutic, where you, you see all of the, the imperatives in scripture, the imperatives in life. You must do this. You must do this. You must do this. Um, and, and it really can kill you. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, that's the point of the law, right? That's what Luther says the law does is it kills you. Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to. Right. Um, but its purpose is to render you um, as in complete, total, utter need right something outside yourself absolutely and then alien righteousness comes in with the gospel Mm -hmm. that jesus even you know romans 5 8 while you're while we were still sinners christ died for us Mm -hmm. we have nothing to offer our hands are completely totally empty and yet christ still came to die for us and that's i mean there's no better news than that Mm -hmm. And I, I've known that my whole life. I, I will. I, I don't want to, uh, you know, say that I somehow didn't know that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've been of that mind, but, but for some reason, when I started reading Luther, it was like it clicked. It when did you start clicked. reading Luther? I know you said you mentioned you attended a Lutheran church in college, but um, when was it when you when you just really encountered Luther in that very deep, intimate way? For the first time, I guess. I mean, uh, not to say that I'm a, a recent Luther convert or anything, but it really was in about January of last year. Okay. Yeah, um, I mean, it's fine if it is recently. It comes when yeah. it comes. I mean, I had... yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, I'll, I'll give you an example from ministry how Luther has so deeply impacted me. Um, so, my sermons used to be a brief introduction to the text for that mm-hmm. Sunday. For those who are listening and are not familiar with the Episcopal liturgy, you know, we have what's called a lectionary where we read over a period of three years in three different cycles, of, or, or I guess it's a three-year cycle, but three different years focusing on three different gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke with John spliced in. And we have uh, an epistle reading, an Old Testament reading, a Psalm, and then the gospel um, and, and so, you know, I would preach on one of those lessons and it would be just like a little brief exegesis and then lots of homework for folks to do when they would leave. Right. Um, so, you know, that's very common, um, for, for clergy. It's not exclusive to the Episcopal church. It's very common in general. And, and I just found myself saying the same things every week, um, pray more, read your Bible more and help people more. Mm -hmm. And I mean, not that those things are bad because right. they're, they're good. <laughs> they're, they're objectively good things. But when I started reading Luther and I started really 
thinking about it and praying about it, I realized that preaching is about opening up scripture for people to see how God is at work. Mm -hmm. Um, Recently, I heard um, Ashley Null, the Reverend Canon Dr. Ashley Null, who's a Cranmer scholar. Um, he's been mentioned on this podcast before. Um, I'm trying to get I, him I heard, on the podcast. I, I got to meet him last fall. But yeah. So yeah. Different. yeah. <laughs> uh, he's a busy dude. I, I, that would be awesome, though. Um, yeah. But he, uh, he, he said something the other day that, that really grasped me, um, which is that, that Cranmer and I think it's safe to say Luther did too, but Cranmer views scripture as a promise book. Mm -hmm. It is a book of God's promises for us. And so every sermon since then that I've preached has been, you know, digging into the text and, and whether it's during Lent and really, you know, preaching uh, the law followed by this, you know, beautiful revelation of the gospel that, that, you know, even though we are still sinners, sinner saints, we may be, but, but still sinners, Christ died for us and, and his sacrifice is perfect. So, so the, the Luther way of saying it would be that Jesus Christ for you, you know, that's the way that we're, that I'm, that I'm preaching. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, I would, one of, one of my favorite things that Luther has said is I, I preach justification by faith every Sunday because every week my people forget. Yeah. Uh, and, and, it's, and you probably forgot too. The preachers need to hear it too. I mean, I forget it. I, yeah. I, I, I talk about it on this podcast. I preach it. <laughs> I teach kids about it at the school I teach at. Right. Uh, not in that language. I'm not, it's not always a doctrinal one-on-one justification by faith, but it's like that Christ has done for you, what we cannot do for ourselves and he's your gift. Right. Right. Uh, and that's, I mean, it should be universally recognized across all Christians, Catholic, Protestant alike, but, but Luther had a special um, emphasis on it, didn't he? About yeah. and, and like what you said, the promise. Um, I mean, this definitely. I think Doctor Knowles right on that. I think uh, Oswald Bayer too, who's a Luther scholar. Right? Yeah, he actually writes one of the books I'd recommend about Luther. Um, Oswald Bayer, uh, his he basically says the central kind of driving impetus or driving force of Luther's theology and thought is a. Uh, in latin promissio this the uh that uh, if it's uh that's so central to luther that everything is a that the promise of christ to you it it you find it in his sacramental thought you find it in his theology of the word or how he sees the bible or how the how he sees the bible playing in the lives of the role the Bible plays in the lives of believers. Right. Uh, and that it is literally a vessel that brings Jesus to you. It's not something we need to, and that's something I feel, whether it was the medieval scholastic theologians, which Luther very much saw himself against, or whether it's modern historical critics, um, a lot of them see the Bible as something to uh, be deciphered. Right. And uh, Luther, I mean, Luther was, we were, for Luther, we are passive recipients when we read the Bible. We are not actively mining it. We are, yeah. the Holy Spirit is doing that work, not us. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God, right? Right, oh yeah. So, I, I, I've got another, I've got another Dr. Null uh, nugget um, uh, from that class. He said the Bible is the spigot of the Holy Spirit. Spigot of the Holy Spirit, yeah. Yeah, um, and that's, that's the exact thing you're talking about, that we are, that we are passive recipients, that we are, we are receivers. So we're literally having 
God's word poured over us when we hear the word read and proclaimed mm-hmm. and faith comes by hearing, right? Faith is not an intellectual ascent. Faith is a gift. Right. So like, it's nothing that initiates within us. It's something that's given to us. Right. And that may sound to some of the more, um, so, some of the more like second grade awakening and afterward, uh, evangelicals, it may sound a little frustrating, mm-hmm. but like, this is, this is what the church has been saying since the very beginning. Like this is Paul. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and one thing Luther did for me, cause when you, when you were talking about kind of your, your journey as a preacher, um, my preaching changed, uh, the emphasis in my preaching definitely changed over as I read more Luther. I mean, I can get into my own kind of first encounter with Luther in a little bit, but, um, what luther did open up for me was was paul first off but in that the wider new testament canon yeah um and i feel like in and this isn't to just uh be critical of the episcopal church but this is where i've seen it happen and i know it happens in other churches and other mainland churches is that there's such an emphasis put on the gospel reading uh as if that should be always what the preacher preaches on and at that point, it's easy when you're just reading the gospel readings to have a theology of glory mm-hmm. because it's first all, I mean, like, I mean, I like the lectionary and all, but I mean, it's it, a lot of times it's the, the full narrative is not there. You're getting a snippet from the narrative. So here's Jesus doing some awesome thing. Jesus doing some awesome teaching. And it's not tied into a holistic piece it's not tied into a greater holistic theology instead it's just like okay what what can we take from this little snippet and it turns easily into a theology of glory go be like jesus right (laughs) go be like jesus go do what jesus did here right uh again like i I know i know our listeners know this uh but james James and i don't discourage like going and loving and being compassionate right because we need to be that but um that's not so anyways so as i began to appreciate more of Paul, which led to more of the New Testament, which led to more of the Bible, and then being Luther later in his theology of the Word, uh, we I think Luther can teach us a lot about appreciating the full the fullness of the Bible and Luther's own understanding of the gospel and the Greater Reformation understanding of the gospel is not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right. The got epistles are gospel. I mean, what the, all thirteen letters of Paul? What do you think they're about? They're about Jesus. They're not his biography, though there are there are some biographical bits in there, but it's about Jesus, like the gift of Jesus to you, you know. And so I have found as a preacher, preaching from the epistle um, has just been has been life changing for me as a in my own, you know, preaching. uh, And it preaches really well to our modern here. I mean, the Pauline message, I believe. it speaks very well to our modern current climate yeah. where there's so much righteousness and there's so much, um, I mean, people just tearing each other apart over, um, you know, the whole idea I mean, people getting canceled, people piling on each other on Twitter, this whole idea that um, everyone has to be, you're either all good or you're all bad. Right. <laughs> um, Paul, I mean, it, we, the gospel just totally undermines and shatters that whole, I mean, shatters that whole illusion if you give it a chance. Right. 
so I'm preaching now. <laughs> I need to... <laughs> That's good. No. I, so, so you love preaching from the epistle. I love preaching Christ from the old Testament. Um, yeah, yeah. That's one of my absolute favorites. Um, and one of my other favorite theologians who I won't give that away yet. He's the one who's really helped me to do that a bit better, but like Popping this now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. But, uh, but like this past Sunday, uh, I preached on Luke four, but I talked a lot about Leviticus because, you know, it's a, in Luke four, I talked about Isaiah 61 because, you know, the, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Like that's Isaiah 61 and the year of the Lord's favor. It's a reference in Isaiah 61 back to Leviticus about the year of Jubilee. And so like I was telling people about this and saying that what Jesus is doing here, which is promised in the old Testament is he's bringing the eternal year of the Lord's favor. Like this is his, this is his syllabus, his curriculum for ministry. And this is what he ultimately does right? for you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The vessel, the cradle of Christ um, is what scripture is. And so um, that was a lot of great stuff on Luther. Is there any other resource book recommendations you have? I think um, I got one more. So I'll, I'll mention for, all of them again, if, if that's all right. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm probably no, talking. No, list them all just to, it's good to just uh, recap on what they were. Yeah. So a good biography of Luther is Luther the Reformer by James Kittleson. Um, the standalone work by Luther that I recommend the most is Luther's Bondage of the Will. And I read the, the J.I. Packer or Johnston um, translation, which is from the 60s. I'm sure there have been some updated since then, but I think it reads very well. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not dated or anything. It reads really well. And then the Martin Luther's Basic Theological Writings, which is the compendium by Timothy Null and William Russell of uh, Luther's writings. It gives you like, it has the entire small catechism, the Heidelberg disputation, um, snippets from uh, vignettes from the bondage of the will. Um, and then one little uh, bonus track um, is, I read this recently. It's the Reformation Essays of Dr. Robert Barnes. Um, this is the Luther... Luther that was the Cranmer English connection. guy. He was yeah. the English, yeah. He was Henry VIII uh, had him executed. He did. Well, he started off, if memory serves, as Henry VIII's. Um, he was a chaplain at one point to Henry VIII, I think. Okay. Um, we can we can uh, correct that uh, afterward if I'm wrong. But but um, but Robert Barnes was a student of Luther. He was good mm -hmm. friends with Melanchthon, um, and, and and he's the connection between Thomas Cranmer and Martin Luther that is really solid. He influenced Cranmer. Um, and, you know, there are a few things that I disagree with, but they're minutia. Um, you know, he thinks that there are three marks of the church, um, word, sacrament, and, and good works. Whereas Luther would say, uh-uh, just word and sacrament, you know? Yeah. But, uh, but I mean, he's, he's, he and Melanchthon, I think are, are pretty much of the same mind in that regard, but I absolutely suggest this, especially if you're an Episcopalian and you're interested in Reformation history, Robert Barnes is one of the most understudied Anglican, Anglican Lutherans, Cranmerian Lutherans, whatever you call them, um, yeah. of, of Anglican history. So I, I add that as a bonus track. So. Well, especially that 1530s era, there was so much, um, I mean, the Church of England and in, in its English Reformation was really going in the direction of Luther before the Reformed influence. And so uh, you get, I mean, during that time, you get Bootser, you get uh, Agricola, you get, I mean, you get all these people Right. I have like this Anglo Lutheran, you know, uh, England, Germany. Um, I don't know. 
intersection right going on so um <clears throat> the books i would recommend i know i didn't get to my i've shared it before i mean I, maybe me talking about the resources will basically uh talk so i i would recommend three books for our listeners on, on luther well one one's on lutheranism uh-huh. the other two are on luther and um the only reason i do it for i picked one on lutheranism and not necessarily just luther is um well i'll i'll get into it the this so the one on lutheranism I, th- I think it's good to have for people to have like a basic orientation of what like lutheranism the lutheran church believes um even though there's lots of lots of people love luther and there's lots of great uh luther scholarship that is not even from lutherans but this is for a basic orientation of lutheranism uh the fortress introduction to, to lutheran confessions that's actually more of an introduction to the lutheran confessional document which uh most lutheran churches subscribe to in some way shape or form and the authors of that are one's a ecumenical theologian Gunther gossman gassman german who died five years ago um and the other is scott Hendricks, who is a uh leading north american luther scholar um who's written some other fantastic stuff but they just did a really great job with presenting kind of 101 basic Lutheran ideas. Uh, but nevertheless, I think that can give, it gave me, because that was the first time I really read into, um, well, it's not, I'll back that up. So I read, I took a Lutheran confessions class in my Episcopal seminary. And I, of course, I went to Bexley Hall at the time, which was partnered and shared a campus with Trinity Lutheran Seminary, ELC right. in Columbus, Ohio. And so um, I took a Lutheran confession class after I, I took a church history class originally where I, uh, we had to do a reflection paper on a primary writing from church history. And so, and I know I've shared this story in the podcast, but I decided to, oh man, why did I do Luther? I haven't really read, like James, um, I hadn't really read Luther personally by during my life, strangely, even though I was raised Missouri Synod Lutheran and went to LCMS school until I was in eighth grade. <laughs> but, and so I got the whole catechism. Like, I mean, it was, I mean, I know that world, but I didn't know Luther. Right. And so, um, so encountering him by reading his Galatians commentary for that reflection paper mm-hmm. is where I really, for, and that was, of course, that shook, that really was, that was life-changing. That was, the, that was the first time I encountered him, Luther, just reading him. And it was life-changing in all the ways that we've described when James and I just talked about all the law and gospel stuff and the theology of the cross, all those insights that we kind of came to as we talked about that. That's what all came to me, just I couldn't have put it all in word form then, but that's what all came to me when I read Luther. But anyway, so I decided to take a Lutheran confessions class because I had a lective room. So that's where I read the Fortress Introduction. And so I'd recommend that for people, the Fortress Introduction to Lutheran Confessions by Gassman and Hendricks. Um, just for a basic orientation of basic Lutheranism 101. The next, there's two, uh, there's a historical treatment of Luther, his a biography, and a systematic treatment of Luther. Uh, the historical treatment is Heinrich Bornkim. Uh, and I know I've mentioned that on this show. I actually mentioned that uh, in a previous episode, but it's uh, Heinrich Bornkim's book, Luther in Mid-Career. Uh, Bornkim was a German uh, church historian, uh, brother of the famous kind of mid 20th century new testament uh was that good yeah. Right? yeah yeah second quest of the historical jesus so his book luther and career is awesome it's like basically luther from the time he gets to wartburg castle 
mm-hmm. uh, till the time till the end of that decade. This it's Luther during the 1520s, and that I believe, and I think you know, it's it could be well argued is when all of his key, all the key mm-hmm. ideas of Luther really develop and, and are formulated. Um, right. And it's interesting because it's not like he really sat, other than the catechisms, he never really sat down to write theology. He was a Bible scholar. Um, and it was whatever occasion arose, there's some dispute he had to settle or maybe because he was living in a turbulent time, part of it was caused by him. He had to address it in a certain way. Right. And that's where his theology comes through. But uh, you'll see that in the Born Kim book. And then the systematic treatment I would recommend is Oswald Bayer. I mentioned him a little while ago, his book, Martin Luther's Theology, a Contemporary Interpretation. Don't let the word contemporary turn, turn you off, um, <laughs> listeners. It is a fantastic book because <laughs> he basically says, uh, this is what Luther can offer for us uh, in how we can address and critique the contemporary time. So um, nice. so uh, we so we both kind of did Luther. We each have one more because we're doing we were going to each going to do two, but we're sharing one in this episode, that being Luther. So let's get to our other two. Uh, go ahead. And James, you want to kick off with our next one? Sure, sure. I, I can. Uh, and, and, and you know, I, I don't get offended easily. So if I'm talking too much, just tell me to shut up. You know, it's no, you're good. I mean, if we can go a little bit over an hour, it's fine with me. I mean, yeah. We're good. We're good. <laughs> I remember you messaging me saying, actually, I can go a little longer that once something was canceled. If we, if right. we go a little over, it's not the end of the world, but right, right, right. Yeah. Our, y'all, you, your time as well. But right. Yeah. That's good. That's good. So, so uh, the second one um, is uh, a guy named, and, and so my wife's family is Swedish. Um, and, and so I, I have to learn some of these things. So I, I desperately want to say Bo Jeerts. I but, heard uh, Gertz. So, so I also have a parishioner who his parents, uh, one, one parent was from Norway. The other was from Sweden. And he says it's Bo Yertz. Bo Yertz. Okay. Yeah. So, and he actually, uh, this parishioner actually had him in his, uh, in his den when he was a kid, he, he got to really? meet him and talk to him. And so, um, he had never read any of his work. So I, I recommended to him the, the work that I've read by, by years, the hammer of God, and, and he's reading it now, which is really cool. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so, uh, and I think it's actually boo, boo years, but I, I, I'm going to say Bo because I'm going to, I'm just going to say, be I, just, I don't yeah. feel right calling it boo. It's B-O. Yeah. <laughs> you, so, yeah, so he boo was Radley. I just think like boo Radley. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. Mocking, right, yeah. Um, so, so he was born in 1905, um, died in 1998. He was born in uh, Replinga on Uland uh, off the coast of Sweden. Um, he was a Swedish Lutheran pastor. Um, he went to uh, college at the University of Uppsala, I think, um, and then eventually became the bishop of Gutenberg. Um, so, uh, an interesting little tidbit about him, and by interesting, I mean desperately sad. But he, he was married three times, and all three of his wives predeceased him. Um, so, like, just the fact that he went through all of that, I'm confident made him a, a, an amazing pastor. Yeah. Um, and if he's if he was anything if he was any kind of a pastor, like what he wrote about in the hammer of God, then like, that's the kind of pastor I want to be. Um, yeah. 
So uh, he was very influenced by the pietists. And for, for the listeners who are not familiar with Lutheran subculture, um, the, the pietists are to Lutheranism what Methodists are to Anglicanism. And pietism was a Lutheran reformed. It was kind of just continental Protestantism experienced it really. I mean, it was, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and it's, it's definitely, uh, definitely has more of an influence or more of a, more of a strain of discipline in it than, um, than your average Lutheran, just like Methodism had a lot of that, you know, with uh, Wesley's plain account of Christian perfectionism, that kind of thing, or Christian, yeah, Christian perfectionism. Yeah. Um, and so he was influenced by that. And you can actually see how some of that plays out in his major work, the hammer of God, because you see three different pastors in three different novellas in this, in this one larger novel um, from three different periods in Swedish history. So like the first one's the late 18th century, the second's the mid 19th and the third is roughly around world war two. Mm-hmm. The first two pastors go from being a, perhaps a bit more of the pietist, a bit more legalist, and their congregations are growing exponentially, and people are, you, it, it, you can almost see this as like a Swedish version of the Second Great Awakening taking place, Sure, you know, um, where people are like, you know, coming to be of the mind that like the law is exactly what, you know, we need to be focusing our lives on and, and following and obeying the law and conflating the law and the gospel, which it's perhaps not the uh, most charitable way of saying it, but it is true. I mean, that's what they're doing. Um, and you see these three pastors go from being pastors in that way of thinking to going towards a reformational model, going towards uh, a more law gospel distinction model and seeing how that plays out in pastoral ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the first one, I don't remember all the names offhand, but the first one, he he ends up being pastored to by um, a very wise woman in his congregation. He goes to, he goes to, um, to be with someone at the hour of their death. And the woman was a better pastor than he was because he was completely dumbstruck about what he was supposed to say. Mm-hmm. And I, so I've been with people when they've died mm-hmm. and I know that feeling. Yeah. Cause yeah. like if they're conscious or if they're not, if they're asking questions or if they're not, I clam up. Yeah. Cause like, I, I just, you know, like what you say is sticking with this person and either right. they die, uh, you know, feeling the comfort of the gospel or they feel the desolation of the law. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a really profound moment. And so like, uh, I, I, I try and just be a calming presence and, and remind people of the promise. And I've gotten better about that since I read this novel, which sounds strange maybe, but like this, it's, it's, it's an absolutely amazing, it's my favorite novel of all time. I recommend it to anybody who asks me what my favorite novel is. And like, you don't have to have, it's, it's not esoteric. It's not yeah. like you have to have yeah. some profound knowledge of Swedish Lutheranism sure. and you have sure. to be Swedish. It's, it's a novel like C.S. Lewis, right? But I wouldn't even say probably not even that cerebral. Uh, no, no. Know. I mean, gosh, you know, you have to read, <laughs> you have to read the space trilogy like three times to get it. <laughs> right. um, Maybe that wasn't the best example listeners, but <laughs> uh, no, it is a, I mean, it, it was a, 
popular literature. It was actually kind of a bestseller book too. I mean, wasn't it? It was, back, yeah. Back in the day. Um, yeah, and and it's only it's only recently been translated into English. Like, oh, really? it was very popular in Sweden, um, but it's only been in the last like forty years that it's been translated. Um, or may, maybe I'm getting my time frame off here. Maybe even less time than that. But it might have even been the the mid '90s or something. Like, it's it's really recent when it's coming to English. Um, and there's a big project. Um, I have nothing to do with this, so it's, there's no kickback coming my way, but, but 1517.org is doing a lot of um, translation of, of, of year to stuff. Um, Broer Erickson, who is a contributor at 1517, is translating stuff um, for them, and, and he's, he's translating it from Swedish, obviously, into English. Um, and so it's definitely worth your time to go to 1517.org and look at the stuff that they've got. He just finished translating the prequel to the hammer of God, which even though I haven't read it, I'm going to go ahead and recommend it because I know it's good. Um, yeah. And that's called faith alone. And faith it's about um, uh, I think it's Sweden in the 1540s um, kind of a similar feel. Um, so uh, yeah. Um Oh, I, I wrote a couple of other small little biographical things um, that, that actually he was. That's the, that's the thing, right? So, so he and he and C.S. Lewis actually have a very similar background. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, raised in a country where there was an institutional church, raised in a sort of skeptical home. His mother was an agnostic. His father was an atheist, but he was baptized as a Christian, when he was, you know, a baby, um, baptized in the church of Sweden, he was an atheist, but became a Christian when he was in college. He, um, he listened to, uh, a, 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 not, not an, or, uh, the guy was not ordained, but, but he was a pacifist, um, theologian named Nathaniel Beskow, I think. Um, and eventually, um, uh, uh Bo Yertz became a Christian and, he didn't have a doctorate. So this is, you know, this is another one of those great examples of brilliant theologians who don't have the letters PhD behind their name. Uh, and yeah. We need, we need more of those because uh, I have one on my list. He's not on here today, but yeah. Um, I, I have another on my list too. So, mm-hmm. so this is, this is good. Um, <laughs> I read yeah, one so, book. Uh, I didn't mean to cut you off. You were, um, he, I've never read Hammer of the Gods, so I'll confess that. But I have, um, I read one Bo Geertz, Bo Geertz book. It was, um, has a long title. It's called Christ Church. The subtitle is Her Biblical Roots. Her, let me just read the full title. Christ Church, her, her Biblical Roots, Her Dramatic History, Her Saving Presence, Her Glorious Future. And it's kind of like, an, I guess you could say, an ecclesial, ecclesial, ecclesi theological work um but there's one quote i want to uh share from it that is like uh, a goosebumps quote like a really awesome quote um he says right he writes in this just as the son of god lived here on earth the word of god also has its earthly and insignificant form just as many were offended that the son of god appeared among them as a simple carpenter with callous hands many are also offended that the word of God here on earth has the same form as common human words. Just as God allowed that we humans maltreated his son and spat him in the face, nor does he prevent us when we maltreat the word by nailing it to the cross of criticism, spitting on it and scornfully saying, 
They now step down to us and answer our questions, showing us that everything in it makes sense so that we can believe it. Both word and sacrament are vehicles of the living God. Amen. Amen. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Such a good quote. Yeah. Such a yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I guess uh, I'll go with the last. I guess we're <clears throat> kind of making good. Let me get, take a drink of my tea real quick. Sure. Oh, it's gone. <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, I'll rough, rough through this one. So uh, <clears throat> my, ne- my next one, I didn't go chronological because I'm going about 1,200 years uh, backward to yep. St. Augustine, St. Augustine of Hippo. Um, so Augustine's life is fascinating. If you would have uh, asked me at 23, 24 years old, <clears throat> when uh, it, was, it was a little bit before I went to seminary, and I was starting to dip my toes into reading some works from theologians or maybe religious scholars, a lot of them that you can find on the Barnes and Noble bookshelf prior to this, even though that, that whole section is kind of slimmed down a bit, even from then. This is about oh my gosh, I went there the other night and I was, I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked. Pretty pitiful. Yeah. yeah. I would have given you something, not having ever read a word from St. Augustine. Uh, St. Augustine is a, a terrible person who ruined Christianity and invented this awful thing called Western Christianity, which is a distortion of what Jesus was about. And we need to get all this, uh, all that bull crap. Yeah. Um, and that's just, uh, and then later I got into St. Augustine and, and, and I guess I could credit Luther for that in the way that he got me into Paul. <clears throat> I also got into Augustine and Augustine has a, his life story is fascinating because it's in the similar vein as Paul and mm-hmm. Luther. And even John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, who left, who was converted and left behind his life of being a slave trader. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Augustine's a convert. He's a Christian convert who saw the light and who, in seeing that light, discovered that the grace of God was larger than anything he had previously sought to find fulfillment in. And uh, for our listeners, I, I couldn't, uh, James was good with the dates for his two guys. I, I, I I know Augustine lives, he lives in the 300s. I don't, couldn't tell you the birth and death dates, uh, but he lives in a pivotal time Yeah, because it's at the time when we, it's kind of towards the end of what we'd call the period of early Christianity into the beginning of the period we would call medieval Christianity. Um, so he's kind of a bridge of those two eras, but uh, he has a fascinating life story. He was a uh, he, his parents were, were was a he had a mixed couple of parents. What I mean by that is his, his father was pagan, mother was devout Christian, and that was probably pretty common back then. You see that in the lives of a lot of saints. They have their their families are mixed, but Manichaeanism was a philosophy, I guess, a religion in a way, kind of a Gnostic religion. Augustine did a, a seek to find fulfillment in for a while. Spent many it, uh, during his days, uh, Augustine grew up never really embraced the Christian faith of his mother. Um, he was very intelligent, uh, when I went on an intellectual journey, which, which brought him into the academy or what the academy, what it was at that time. Um, the most well-versed of any of the church fathers, arguably in philosophy, I don't think arguably, I think it's certain, especially in, especially in Plato. And we'll get to that, but Manichaeanism was of course, uh, this, religio philosophy whatever it was bizarre on many fronts um i I will point our listeners to a good biography of augustine is by henry chadwick who is a english 
British uh, church historian in the mid to late 20th century. And he wrote a great biography of Augustine. I think it was called St. Augustine, but I'll, uh, or it could be called Augustine of Hippo. One of the two. I think it's Augustine of Hippo. Yeah. Great. You've read it. <clears throat> I haven't read it. I have it on my shelf. Really? Oh man. Uh, dust that thing off uh, one day. Cause it is I good. I mean, I recently read it and I've okay, good, good, really good. But, but Augustine came to find that Manichaeanism, which was a very dualistic, you know, type of religion where there's good forces in the world and bad forces in the world. And they're always at war with each other. I guess there's always an antithesis going on because neither one ever ends up winning out. I guess the human goal uh, is to, is to uh, do away with the bad and a lot of matter and is seen as bad, but there's no like ultimate tell loss. There's no ultimate a directional goal of how that is really attained and this was kind of his augustine's quest he he wanted to he wanted to find rest i think he wanted to find and he found that in the grace of god by when he finally became a christian and and uh and it's his it's just because his whole faith journey tied with his intellectual journey i think is really fascinating because um uh, as he he finally be, moved beyond Manichaeanism and became a Christian, because he saw that um, not that the world of matter doesn't matter, so to say that that that's what his old philosophy would have said, um, right. but he also saw that uh, the truly good is something eternal and something that transcends everything he was maybe preoccupied about, in the, and it, and it's there's a uh, divine realm which we the faithful as Christians are destined toward. And part of this was like the, the, was also Platonistic thought. Plato believed in this as a philosopher. If, if you, you know, you've, a lot of us learned the allegory of the cave in school where like someone's tied up in a cave and they see shadows and those shadows are merely a reflection of what the real thing is. And so if we leave the cave and the sunlight, uh, we, we are met with sunlight, which, which, illumines the truth for us and Pla and augustine said you know plato's onto something there but what plato doesn't get to is that that light that illumines the truth for us is only to be found in the gospel of christ right um and so uh it's his i find that and henry chadwick in his bio speaks a lot to uh both that spiritual and intellectual journey of, of augustine and another book i'd recommend and i won't uh i won't have i won't break down a lot of it but if uh augustine he he's like luther there's a lot of key concepts that got traced back to him and um a good book uh, about augustine uh and i know i think i've mentioned this on the show too in the past rw dyson wrote a book called saint augustine of hippo the political transformation or no the christian transformation of political philosophy I'll put a show note for it, but it shows how Augustine really, because of the time he lived in, uh, when Rome started to crumble and it was, you know, the fall of Rome was very gradual and the glory of Rome that once was, was no longer. And at the point Augustine is living in this, Rome had been Christianized for some time already. And so there was kind of this like crisis of like, if Rome is falling apart, is Christ like king is his land? Because now it's Christianized, right? It's like the religion of the land. 
is Christianity falling apart? And that's what prompted Augustine to write City of God, which kind of planted the idea of what the reformers and Protestant thought would later call two kingdoms. And that in itself is, is fascinating. That book, I mean, if you read, you can read City of God um, to really get it from Doris's mouth, so to speak, of what Augustine, how he presents this, how there are two cities. There is a uh, temporal uh, kingdom we live in. There is a heavenly kingdom. Uh, there's a distinction um, and they both have a purpose type thing. But the R.W. Dyson book I recommended adds onto that and shows how that thought got transformed in medieval Christendom to say that, you know, you know, Augustine would classically Augustine would have said the purpose of the temporal state, the earthly kingdom is to deter, right? We can never achieve true justice because only God can do that. Only in, in the kingdom where God rules can true justice, right? Well, we can have order. We can have, um, we can have a well-constituted earthly kingdom and we can deter uh, evil things, but it, we cannot have true justice. That's where um, Luther gets the first use of the law, right? That's where he gets, right. Um, and I mean, it's a lot of the same two kingdoms. Idea. I mean, a lot of Luther gets us like from Augustine. Um, sure. But medieval Christendom transformed that in a way that said, well, because only a realm ruled by God can true justice prevail. Well, then it must be an earthly kingdom uh, overseen by spiritual authorities, which was the institutional church in there in that way of thinking. So it, it, he, Dyson kind of presents a case where, where he shows how like something um, medieval Christendom, medieval Christianity appeals to Augustine in many ways. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's, uh, there's a, there's a difference though. <laughs> so, right. um, yeah, but I love saying, I mean, his works are his anti-Pelagian writings. Augustine was so influential in Western Christianity because he kind of the three chief distortions of the Christian message. One was that Manichaeanism, which he had been a part of. Another was Pelagianism, which we addressed on this show, the idea that, um, you know, we can do right and good on our own and Christ is, is our moral exemplar rather than um, it's his death on the cross, which merits. <laughs> so it's it, that uh, Augustine uh, was the chief opponent of Platonism and his anti-Platonian writings are, are also really, really great. He said something really great about the Lord's Prayer. He said, well, if it, when he was writing to Pelagius, he said, why would we, in a paraphrasing, but he said, why would we uh, pray to lead us, for God to lead us not into temptation? Um, like, why do we need him to, to help us with that if we can do it on our own? Basically is what he says. Right. Uh, right. So if we can avoid it on our own. So um, great quote. And uh, I'll repost it on our, on our Instagram. We, I know I've posted this quote on the podcast Instagram page. Yeah. And one of these days I'll get back on Twitter, but I, 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 I'm not on Twitter, but I'll get the podcast more active on Twitter. Yeah. But I just kind of avoid that place. Well, and, and wasn't the, uh, wasn't the <laughs> offending, uh, the offending quotation from Augustine uh, with regard to Pelagius, something like command what thou wilt and, and give what, or do what thou command or give what thou command. How, how does it go again? Oh, I don't know that. It, yeah. So, it's, so the idea, the idea that, that God gives us, the ability 
to do things. God gives us faith that, that all of this is a gift as opposed to something internal. I think that's what really frustrated Pelagius. Right. Um, and, and that's what really sparked the debate between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, I mean, what you see today in, in the church is the continued debate between Augustine and Pelagius. Yeah. And, and also there's an ecumenical uh, aspect to this because I mean, St. Augustine, I mean, I, I, you know, I've read a lot of, I love St. Augustine. I've read a lot of them, but I do think that um, the Catholic understanding of justification is not the same as Augustine's, but it's, it's the idea of infused grace is right. closer to what he believed in than what the reformer, how the reformers saw that we we're justified. Uh, right. I mean, I'll totally give Catholics there. I mean, that's fair. Um, and so I think a lot of, there's been a lot of interesting Catholic Protestant ecumenical dialogues where Augustine has been a main focus, um, right. especially between Lutheran Catholics. Um, and it's really cool that he's like the guy that Catholics and Protestants both like see as like their number one, you know, <laughs> for very different reasons. It's very odd. Yeah. Um, but he's like the, I can't think of another figure of church history um, other than Jesus. If you know, he, or he, Paul. <laughs> Jesus or Paul, right? Yeah. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux is another big one for Luther. Um, and, uh, right. and, and he's also big for, for, for Catholics. And that's where sort of, what could perhaps be construed as like a, a little bit of a mystical side of Luther comes in. Um, yeah. Clairvaux, yeah. Yeah. But definitely not as big as Augustine, of course. Definitely Luther not as big as Augustine. But, monk, for goodness sake. But you are right that Luther, um, there's a whole, uh, up until the mid 20th century, uh, it was not a pre Luther's medieval background was not appreciated. And, right. um, you know, I, th- you know, I won't, uh, I don't know, but I'll maybe go for another five minutes. I don't want to like sure. gabbing on and gabbing on, but um, you know, uh, like for instance, usually the the classic Protestant narrative, which I think was was inaccurate for a while, was that medieval church it was all Aquinas and Aquinas bad. Luther comes and saves the day, right, right. And I get that in a way, <laughs> but I mean, Aquinas was actually not, and this is trad Catholics wouldn't like hearing this either. Aquinas was not a big deal in his day. I mean, even like Aquinas was not considered the chief theologian for Roman Catholicism until the modern era, like 200 years ago. Like um, Aquinas was significant in his day, but he was just, he was just one thing. Like he was one thing of several significant right. things, right? And you had Duns Scotus who departed from Aquinas on many things. You had different ph- philosophical scholastic things going on in the medieval Christian scene and luther's and there's a mysticism it's luther's influenced by some of that there's yeah. william ockham i know we never really got to he's influenced by that and ockham basically um uh he basically kind of uh, aquinas is, and that's the thing i think for me I, i've always thought as much as a luther file i am i always thought i've always appreciated aquinas's thought because he, he is a very brilliant thinker and he yeah. develops a grand i mean um a very uh uh very uh good inner workings of the of the trinity how that plays out into uh the world and i mean he has like a whole um a, a incredible so theological system he builds but the thing is like william hockham who is a franciscan theologian about a hundred years later or so 
turns a lot of that on his head and not because he's a he's a skeptic in the way that we would say like see a skeptic today but he's basically saying like a lot of these proofs you had a lot of these things that you thought were airtight right are not you're just i mean it works like within itself but there's no, I mean, he, 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 cha- he challenged the very premises that a lot of the scholastics were doing, were basing their, uh, um, their, their theology on. And so, so, and Luther's influenced by Occam. Um, right. We have to do like a later episode on Occam because there's so much more. I mean, I feel like I don't really even do him justice with that. He's really a fascinating thinker. And then Luther's, Luther's of course, influenced by Augustine too, being an Augustinian right. monk. So there, there's a lot of like, you know, Luther's in continuity, you know, uh, with, with the great tradition he's not like he does not emerge in a vacuum right um so i don't know that's uh kind of my th- yeah that's that's super helpful I, I would also add so the the one thing i've read by augustine um so like you know when they 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 recommend or they require reading in seminary you know um the law convicts and and i tend i tend i tended to uh to buck the idea of like if you if you're required to read something like no i don't want to <laughs> Right. <laughs> so like i read i read way more since seminary than i did when i was in seminary um and it's okay to confess that because i've been out you were like too cool for school uh <laughs> no i wouldn't say that uh I, I i definitely nerded out in like all my bible classes but like theology and stuff i i wasn't as i wasn't as um as well read right. but i i've since read um the confessions um uh augustine's confessions yeah. And, and it's, it's definitely worth your time. Yeah. That's I mean, a hard one to read sometimes. Cause he's like, Oh my gosh, you're like, it would be like us, like having like a, a inward crisis over, like over a memory of us, like, like hitting our younger, when we were four hitting our two-year-old brother when we were four or something. Like right. That. Right. Yeah. Scrupulosity. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like who, like some of that, I mean, I get some guilt things about some things in my past, but stuff like that, I moved past. But sure. Justin, that's like the, wrath of god is waiting for me if i don't like confess <laughs> right but, but, but the beautiful thing about it is that it, it it really is it's a mixture of like an autobiography and several philosophical treatises like a treatise on time that he, he mm-hmm. doesn't end of the thing um and so uh I, I read the chadwick translation henry chadwick um which is not as readable, I'm sure, as some of the newer stuff. So like New City Press just came out with a, a new translation of the Confession. Yeah. They're going through his entire corpus and retranslating it. And um, it's probably worth taking a look at those too. But um, but yeah, I recommend the Confessions just because it's a good foray into the way the man thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's City God and Confessions are... Uh both pretty bad say city gods of much lengthier work but yeah those are the two really i mean those are his chief works and they're really good starting points too um it's not easy reading in all of its places i don't think it's i don't wouldn't say they're hard on an intellect well at least confessions isn't hard intellectually i think it's more difficult just god it's so introspective i mean he's just right. he's just pouring it all out and i think right. that that can you know that's it's heavy right not intellectually heavy i guess just general it's heavy yeah, for sure for sure <laughs> but yeah man this has been a great episode um, yeah you know i'm excited for our next one i'll get with charles we'll see when the three of us can um can do this so uh for our listeners thanks for tuning in uh we'll have our next episode our symposium <laughs> we'll see if we end up calling it that 
of more of James and mine, uh, more James and I's are uh, <laughs> theologians, as well as Reverend Charles will be back. And so for those of y'all haven't met Reverend Charles, met him, haven't listened to him, he was on our um, two episodes, uh, the Gainus Maya, Maya Esticum, I'm probably mispronouncing that. Um, we, we, he, we introduced him on that two episodes ago. So God bless everyone and take care.